Hi, welcome to Live Your Dream Podcast, episode 31, How to Be Unhappy. I'm your host, Lena Lee. I'm so excited to share with you a conversation I recently had with Michael Kim, the founder of the law firm Cobra and Kim. As many of you know, this is my second interview with Michael. I shared his first interview last year in July of 2018, and it has been one of the most popular episodes ever on my podcast. So many of you told me that you have re listened to his episode two or three times and have been asking me to do another interview with him. So I decided to give you what you have asked for. And here's another conversation with Michael. As the title suggests, today we're going to talk about how to be unhappy. And I know this is probably not the topic you expected, but Michael actually picked it as a companion to our last discussion when we talked about how to make yourself happy. In our new conversation, we're talking about what kinds of situations lead to feelings of unhappiness and different ways of approaching them rather than just saying we want to avoid unhappiness. So many of us resist feeling any negative emotions, and the desire to be happy or avoid being unhappy drives us to do so many things and influence a lot of the decisions we make. Yet, as you'll hear in our conversation, all of our emotions, including negative ones like the feeling of unhappiness, are just signals where we can learn more about ourselves and about what we want. So, we are going to talk about how to be unhappy and how to deal with feelings of unhappiness. Our conversation was so much fun and it went a lot longer than I had expected. So, I decided to share them in three different episodes. I learned so much from talking to Michael and I think you will too. So, I hope you'll tune in to all three episodes. In today's episode, Michael talks about two different types of unhappiness. First, when there's sources from the outside, like when situations and people around us are making us unhappy. And second, what to do when we're unhappy with ourselves. And I know this is something so many of us deal with because as human beings, we all have insecurities, doubts, and things that we don't like about ourselves. And Michael has really unique insights and shares how he deals with them. By the way, if you haven't listened to his first interview, How to Make Yourself Happy, I highly encourage you to go back and listen to that episode. In that first interview I had with him, we talked about his career path and how he built his law firm and what he does to make himself happy. And it was one of the most inspiring conversations I've ever had. I'll have a link to it on the show notes for today's episode. I've learned so much from people I've interviewed on my podcast, like Michael, and many other inspirational guests I've had on my show, and also I wrote about in my book. And I started to discover the common themes of the successful people and the difference between people who achieve incredible amount of success and live fulfilling lives and those who don't. And also through coaching many people through career transitions and giving talks in front of thousands of people. I learned so much about how we can be happy in our careers and life. 
I realize so many people are lost and feel stuck. And the reason is because we never learned in school or from our families how to figure out our career and life. So if you're feeling stuck, you're not alone and it's not your fault. I learned that being truly happy in a career is possible only when what we do is aligned with who we are. I developed a coaching framework to help people to do what they love and to live happy and fulfilling lives. The framework is called LOVE, yes, L-O-V-E, and I talked about it in my last episode, but for those of you who haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, I'll briefly tell you about it. So LOVE, L is for learn about yourself, O, overcome internal obstacles, V, visualize your success, and E, explore and take action. A lot of people I coach have applied the love framework to their careers and life and have seen profound results. So I decided to create a program to help many more people learn and apply this framework to their careers and lives. I am so excited to share with you that I'm launching my very first group coaching program. I've taken everything I've learned over the years and designed a powerful program where I'll be guiding you through an inspirational journey of transforming your career and life through the love framework. So if you are ready for a big change, I invite you to join me in transforming your career and life so you can finally take action and achieve what you've always wanted, whether that is a career transition, starting a side project, writing a book, or whatever your goal or dream may be. Everything will be online and on the phone so you can participate from anywhere in the world. I have to tell you that this will be a very small exclusive group coaching program and I'm only inviting three to five highly motivated people to join. So if you're interested, I'll have a link on the show notes or go to selinali.co forward slash CHA, which stands for Career Happiness Academy. That is C-E-L-I-N-A-L-E-E dot C-O forward slash C-H-A. Okay, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Michael. Hi, Michael. Hello. <laughs> oh my God, this is yeah. so much fun. I'm very excited. I know. I have gotten so many messages after your interview went live. And people have wrote me from all over the world asking for a second interview. So here we are. Um, so many people consider you a virtual mentor. A listener from Sydney, Australia, called you a Korean-American Yoda. <laughs> well, you know, it's appropriate because if you listen to how Yoda speaks and his syntax, he's actually Korean. Really? Like he The way, the order he says things, it's like he would say if you were speaking English, a table on top of cup is. <laughs> that's exactly how you would say it in Korean. Oh so. my God, that is right. <laughs> so let's get started, Korean-American Yoda. Okay, so in our last conversation, we talked about how to make ourselves happy. And we thought it might be fun to talk about how to be unhappy yep. <laughs> as a sort of a companion to our last discussion. So I think we, we, we talked about how we're going to break into three different categories. So let's first talk about how to be unhappy when the sources are from outside. And of course, you know, hopefully knowing what makes us unhappy will help us to decrease that. So it will lead us to being more happy. So how do we deal with um, when we are in a situation where sources from outside or people uh, around us are making us unhappy? Um, so 
throughout all this, I'll just tell you sort of how I deal with it. I don't really know if I can really pontificate for how other people should be dealing with these issues. But um, I think much of unhappiness uh, people perceive and I perceive to be kind of done to you by other people, circumstances, et cetera. Um, I think before setting out to figure out how to be happy, which is how I think most people would articulate what their goal is, I think it's important to define what happiness and unhappiness is for yourself very rigorously so that you understand what it is you're setting out to do. Right. And the way I define unhappiness is the feeling of a mismatch between either my expectation or wish as to how things would be, either about myself or my environment, and how things actually are or will become. So it's that mismatch that's causing the feeling that I would call unhappiness. So that feeling could manifest itself in terms of uh, being worried about something or feeling uh, angry or sad. Uh, So all these are different ways of articulating the mismatch. And so I think even though it's actually quite obvious, I think many people when they go right into a manifestation of being unhappy, like you feel angry about something, they don't even realize what's actually happened is you've passed the unhappiness uh, emotion and now it's manifesting itself. It's like you have a cold, but now you're coughing. It's like the symptom of unhappiness. And then they just try to deal with the anger or they you know, think that the, they get into a fight with somebody and then it just starts to escalate into an argument. I think it's important to identify the reason you're feeling or that I am feeling sometimes unhappy is because of the mismatch. And so I think that actually is very helpful to me to think about it that way because it allows me to really um, articulate precisely what is it about a a present condition or something that's going to happen in the future that's different from what I expect or wish it would be. And then it allows me to really just be really precise about what it is that I'm actually complaining about when I say I'm unhappy rather than going right into the emotion I feel. Uh, I see. So rather than dealing with that difficult emotion of being unhappy, which sometimes manifests into like anger or other types of behavior, you think about what makes you unhappy. Yeah, that's okay. right. And I actually think it's really very useful when um, you're unhappy. And that's why this whole segment is how to be unhappy <laughs> as opposed to how to avoid unhappiness. Mm. Because um, I actually think it's a really useful signal signaling device to help you see that there's something about how either you're living your life or what's happening around you that's not what you want. Got okay? it. And without that signal, it's a little bit like if you had no sensitivity and you had no pain, right. that you wouldn't realize your hand's not supposed to be on the hot stove or whatever it is. So oh. whenever I start feeling unhappy, I actually think it's actually very useful uh, to make me realize there's something that's really different from how I want it to be. So it allows me to zone in on it. So it's like you use emotion as a signal to learn more about yourself and what you want. Yeah, exactly. So rather than just, you know, saying, well, my goal is to avoid unhappiness altogether and then feeling frustrated that you are unhappy. uh, I I really just kind of think of it as being unhappy is just the same thing. Really, in many ways, the same emotion as being happy. In other words, you become happy when you go from something where there's a mismatch to a match. Right. But if you never had the mismatch in the first place, you may not actually have that feeling of happiness. So, you know, you always hear about, uh, I recently read about a, uh, I think, a student from China who had been living in Manhattan. This is about a week ago in the New York Times. 
living in Manhattan in an apartment paid for by her parents. Her parents were paying her tuition and financing her entire lifestyle. And she was arrested because what she had done apparently was staged a fake kidnapping of herself and sent a ransom demand to her parents to send her 25, send this fictional kidnapper $75,000 to try to, I guess, you know, get more spending money from her parents. Oh my gosh. And what I thought was, uh, you know, how sad is it that she really felt so desperate that she resorted to something like that or how warped must her uh, values be compared to most normal, most other people right. to do that. And I think it's um, interesting is that if you were placed in her position, most people, if they got to got an apartment in Manhattan and their tuition and lifestyle paid for with no conditions attached, I think you'd feel happy. Oh, absolutely. But obviously that person didn't. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I think it's because that person, that was the norm, normal temperature for that person. Interesting. So they didn't feel hot or cold. And if they wanted to feel something else, they needed to change it. Maybe they wanted the excitement of doing something dishonest mm-hmm. to their parents. Maybe they just wanted more money. Right. And this was you know, how they were going to become less unhappy or happy. Wow. So it's the difference between expectation and your reality. Yeah. And everybody has different expectation of what their norm is. And when you understand that, you are able to live, I guess, a more happier life. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that, mm-hmm. at least for me, the goal is not to be happy. Mm-hmm. It's the goal is uh, to just be happy and, unha- and, and also be unhappy mm-hmm. in the way that I want. Um, so... I think people get very frustrated if they think their goal is to eradicate unhappiness from their life. Right. Which uh, in the process of trying to do so, you probably would eradicate happiness from your life too. And you always hear about people who uh, work really hard and they imagine retirement is going to be really great. Yeah. Some people really enjoy it, but other people, uh, when they get there, they find that all the frustration and difficulty of a job is gone, but uh, so is everything else about the job. And then they end up uh, feeling, some people end up feeling lonely or forgotten. Uh, And then, um, you know, they kind of took away what was causing them unhappiness. But at the same time, they took away what was causing them happiness as well. Interesting. Sometimes because sometimes one source gives you happiness and unhappiness at the same time. Yeah, I would argue virtually everything that gives you happiness also gives you unhappiness. Hmm. Can you give us an example? Um, I think children. Uh, Oh, right. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. The reason you feel so much love and joy from them is also the same reason when they disappoint you, you feel such intense emotion That's about right. about what uh, what's happening. So, mm-hmm. I, and you know, I think really any uh, if you avoided say any relationship mm-hmm. where you love somebody, uh, you could probably avoid most uh, sources of disappointment and unhappiness if you never loved anyone. So that's, that's why I think right. you can never decouple happiness and unhappiness. Mm-hmm. So can you give us an example of how you deal with uh, a source of unhappiness in your own life? Sure. Uh, so starting with uh, things outside of right. me that make me unhappy. Uh, you know, I thought of three, a, a few different examples. I think um, first is there are things that make me uh, worry about things that I actually do not have the power to change or I've done all I can. Right. So an example is um, when I was younger and I was uh, I had come to the U.S., I was not a U- I didn't become a U.S. citizen until I was 20 years old. Um, and initially, I actually came here on a tourist visa. Oh, I didn't uh, know that. And, uh, and then I think uh, my status was a little ambiguous for a time after I stayed here after right. a tourist visa. Mm-hmm. And then I actually was, uh, there was a period of several years when 
it was unclear whether we might have to go back to Korea. Oh, I see. Because we couldn't get status so in, in the US. There's a lot of uncertainty. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think at that point, uh, the concept of after all the work I put in to try to learn English and adapt to a new life, that we go back to Korea and I would be many years behind everybody else. And, you know, I left when I was so young, I wouldn't have any friends. Uh, my parents, uh, you know, it's unclear whether my dad could get a job. It's hard enough, even if you stay in Korea and you compete to get a job. For sure. Yep. So it caused incredible amounts of distress. Uh, and, uh, you know, my, my dad at one point was working a temporary uh, assignment in the Middle East while I w my mom and I were living in Boston. Um, and my mom, uh, I remember at the time, was working at a Korean laundromat. Mm -hmm. And so uh, she was really busy all the time. My dad, the job was going to end. And if he didn't get another job in the U.S., we would not have status. And we'd probably just have to go back to Korea. We'd be deported probably. Wow. And so uh, for about a year, back then there was no monster.com or whatever. I would uh, look at the newspapers every single day and trying to find jobs for my dad, I How think this was, I think I was like uh, 13 or wow. so, uh, 13 or 14. I would try to find jobs for my dad and put together his application oh my and uh, and apply for all these jobs. I applied for thousands of engineering jobs, really, wow. during that time. So I felt incredible amounts of stress all the time uh, about what might happen and you know whether all the work I'm putting in would just go to waste and I'll end up, uh, you know, Korea is a pretty unforgiving competitive society. Oh, if you definitely, yeah, you, if you end up kind of going sideways, uh, you could end up really just never being able to get anything you want in that right, society. Right. Um, so I think that was one of a couple of examples where I felt like I was doing everything I could. And yet the prospect of a, what I thought was really a catastrophic event was still very much on the horizon. Right. Um, and I felt immense amounts of stress. And uh, and I think what really helped me kind of get through it as well as kind of be at peace in future similar situations is I just really thought, well, what are the things I can do to try to affect what the outcome would be? Mm -hmm. um, and then I thought, well, what's the worst possible thing, realistic possible thing that would happen if uh, I couldn't succeed in changing the outcome? And with respect to the first, I just wanted to make sure I was doing everything I could, uh, and I was. And with respect to the second, um, I envisioned what it would be like to have to go back to Korea and start all over again. And uh, my family wasn't wealthy, uh, and so it would have been really bad. But I actually just internalized it and made peace with it. So oh, I think I once I felt like there was something outside of me that I was doing everything I could to change, but... Um, I was actually going to be still able to deal with it if it happened. I actually stopped feeling that mismatch, you know, mm. the mismatch between what you want, desperately want things to be right. and how it might be. And I uh, decided, you know, the mismatch really is between am I doing everything I can to accept, to uh, influence the outcome? If I'm not, I should feel unhappiness because I need to close that gap. It's an important signal. <laughs> if I'm not applying for jobs in a particular week, I need to feel insecure and unhappy, so I do it. Right. But once I felt like I was doing everything I could, 
um, I really just was uh, pretty much at peace with the whole thing. And luckily, it worked wow. out. He did get a new job. He did job. get the job yeah. from one of the applications you sent yes, out. Yeah. Oh, wow, yeah. amazing. Yeah. You changed your family's future. Yeah. Oh, I don't know about that. It, it, he also had other uh, contacts with that company, it turned out. So. Wow, amazing. Yeah. Wait, so then, how do you make peace with it? Because I think when some people think about like the worst case scenario of whatever their yeah. biggest fear is, it like makes them so stressed out and so insecure and so terrified that they're all like they're like paralyzed. Yeah. I actually think it's really built into most human beings to adapt to right. almost anything that's bad. And, you know, frankly, going back to Korea with two parents who are healthy, who are taking care of you, in the grand scheme of human suffering is really not suffering. Right. Just it, to me, it was very stressful. You didn't but, know that at the time. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. But, you know, most people go through a lot more. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, another thing that is an example of something that goes to what you just said, which is, you know, how do you adapt to unhappiness or an unhappy scenario is I, and why I think human, the human mind can really adapt to a lot of things is when I was in my 20s, um, I had a, a, a trauma to my, uh, my ears from really loud noise. And I went completely deaf for several days. Oh my gosh. So uh, this was when I was in the army, I ended up firing several hundred rounds of a machine gun with no hearing protection. Oh my gosh. And for whatever reason, it caused me to go completely deaf. I couldn't hear a single thing, and I, I didn't know how long it would. La- maybe it was permanent. <laughs> wow, <gasps> you must have been so scared, were you? Yeah, I, I mean, it was, it was really pretty. Probably one of the most frightening experiences I went through, which is just all sound just completely turned off. Yeah, so the immediate problem was I had gone completely deaf, mm-hmm. and so, um, but I wasn't really in the right frame of mind, which is that. I probably should have like sought out medical attention, but right. I was so worried about having to repeat from the beginning the school I was going through in the army, <laughs> which was oh really God. physically demanding, that I was afraid that first, my first fear was that the instructors would find out that I had gone deaf. So I wrote notes to my friends in my platoon that I've gone completely deaf and you need to help me hide this fact from the instructor so they don't recycle me <laughs> to the next class. Oh, my gosh. Um, and so some of my friends cooperated. Uh, they probably should have taken me to the hospital. And I actually ended up going through the woods for several days, not hearing anything, but um, <gasps> using hand and arm signals and people writing me notes about what we were supposed to be doing. Oh, my god! The hearing started coming back faintly after a few days such that I could barely function. Uh, people yell a lot in the Army anyway, so it's quite helpful. But over time, what happened was uh, my hearing came back mostly in my right ear, but in my left ear, came back only partially. Mm-hmm. And uh, I ended up having lifelong tinnitus, which is, uh, remember, uh, maybe you might be too young to remember the test of the emergency broadcast system mm-hmm. where you watch television. and Yes, yes. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. I'm old enough to remember that. <laughs> <laughs> and they would just like play this high-pitched noise the entire time, like, mm-hmm. So yes. I hear that con- ever since my 20s, I've heard that constantly 24 hours a day. And I hear it right now. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's like unbelievable what you've done with your life with that challenge. I think most people don't even know that so about it, you, right? Um, at some points in my life, it started really driving me crazy, mm. uh, such that I, I it made me like so frustrated and irritable and really unhappy about just continuing on with this noise constantly, like never, you can't turn it off. I went to lots of doctors. It's nerve damage, so there's really nothing you, you can do about it. Wow. But what I found incredibly over time is I could train myself to tune it out. 
So I can actually, uh, I still hear it if I realize, if I think about it, but I can concentrate on things and just completely tune it out. And wow. that goes to the, what we were talking about a few minutes ago, which is I think the human mind is actually quite adaptable. Wow. I didn't think when I f first few years of hearing this noise that my mind could adapt to it. But now after, uh, I guess, 20-something uh, years of hearing this noise, I can now essentially tune it out whenever I really want to. Wow. And this happened in your 20s. Yeah. And so you've essentially had to live with this for like 20-some years. I think the sound will only turn off when I die. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God, Michael, this is unbelievable yeah. and, and really remarkable what you've done with your life. Uh, yeah. Well, to me now, the, the sound, I can essentially, mind, through my mind, turn it off. But mm -hmm. uh, when, I, when I stop concentrating on something, the sound is more noticeable. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. yeah. So I think you said you had three examples, yeah. right? So what's the other one? Well, no. So that, that mm -hmm. first is, uh, you know, I think about things that you can't change. I see. Like the noise, I, I realized at one point I can't change it. Mm -hmm. So being angry about having the noise and, mm -hmm. you know, feeling like I can't uh, go on with my life because of the noise, et cetera, like that was really not going to work. Right. And so I just uh, learned to tune it out. I, once I accepted that this noise would just be there, yeah. I just focused on other things. And that I actually see. helped the noise go away. You know? I see. The, all those years in the beginning when I was trying to think about how am I going to stop the noise and being angry I couldn't, going to all those doctors, it was harder. But once I accepted it was unchangeable, uh, ironically, that's when the noise started going away, at least from my conscious perception. Wow. <laughs> Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So it's an interesting metaphor for how to deal with problems that will always be there. Right. right. So it's like we can only control our actions, but not the outcome. Yeah. So do the best you can to try to change the outcome. But when you realize the out can, outcome can never be changed, just accept it and learn how to peacefully coexist with it. Yeah, that's right. Wow. And mm -hmm. I think um, the second is, uh, you know, I think uh, the problems that... Um, that uh, I find you should just ignore. So I think with respect to things you can't change, that's what we're just talking about. But another category of problems is problems that, unlike tinnitus, which will not improve over time, just your perception of it improves. Right. There are other problems that actually will fix itself over time. So whenever I encounter one of these problems, and I'll give you an example, uh, when I was a uh, first starting out in the legal profession, I had worked so hard to get to my first job. Right. Um, and when I got there, it became rapidly clear that my firm was really great. It was a very good environment and so forth. But when, whenever I dealt with clients on multiple occasions, I encountered what I think many people would regard as like real condescending racist behavior. By clients. Wow. So, which, even though you're a lawyer at this very prestigious law firm, you went to Harvard Law School, Harvard undergrad, they were still racist to you. So, I think that, uh, you know, some examples of, uh, I guess, events that caused me to really feel kind of really down and a little bit taken aback is, um, you know, in one of the first cases I was on, I was working really, really hard and um, had ended up going to the first meeting where I got to bring some binders into a client meeting. And um, the client, uh, I, I guess I had said a few things just to people around me, not openly at the, at the meeting. 
And the client uh, took me aside and said, you know, your English is actually really, really good. Oh, my gosh. Uh, and, and then they said, like, you know, uh, um, something along the lines of, like, you know, what was your math SAT score? Because I heard what? that Chinese students uh, are really <laughs> good at math. Uh, so awful. it was a, you know, it wasn't, I don't, I don't think the person was trying to be offensive. I mm-hmm. think it was just the person either from the generation he was from or just, they hadn't encountered that many Asian Americans. So uh, I think in his own way, he was in a very clumsy way trying to be friendly. Right. Uh, so I wasn't uh, feeling bad so much like I thought he was trying to be offensive to me as much as I felt like I'd worked so hard to get there and I wanted to uh, kind of be included as part of you know the whole team. And just the, the stark reminder that I was really seen as a complete outsider. Wow. And that... I wasn't seen the same way as the other, you know, associates that were not, you know, Asian. Really made me feel like, uh, really, uh, you know, start, you start doubting the value of all the hard work and feeling really bad about yourself, et cetera. Mm. But, uh, and this happened several times. And I actually uh, realized that in terms of what I could do about the problem, there was actually very little I could do. Right, because, you can't change your race. Right, I can't change my race. I can't change the people I encounter uh, just randomly from clients. And if they happen to have come from backgrounds where they feel that they can say those things or maybe they think them, there's really nothing I'm going to do about that either. But I realized this is one of those problems that will probably improve over time. Uh, so one of them was, I thought, the country in terms of the demographic trends it was projecting, not just for Asians, but just generally, it was going to be much more mixed race and diverse. And I thought most likely this will cause this dynamic to change because, you know, the people who were teens when I was in my 20s, many of them grew up a lot more with people from different races. There was a lot more intermingling. So you, over time, while still the country still has lots of issues with race, uh, that type of friction between the races on a day-to-day basis has gotten better, although it doesn't seem like it now with all the problems. Right. If, you com- if you do a snapshot of decades ago, it is actually better than right. it was. So in that respect, it was solved itself. And then the other aspect of what was going on was um, that I was junior and young, and young people have trouble being taken seriously, even if you actually do have good ideas. That's right. And that is the ultimate self-correcting problem, ah, uh, your age. You know? That's right. So, um, I think uh, it's important to really identify, is this a problem that will just get better over time? Mm -hmm. And if it's not an acute problem, like it's not becoming a really big problem right now, I would actually just ignore it and just be happy that it's going to solve itself over time. So did you think at the time that, were you like sitting there like, oh, let me identify this problem and this could potentially uh, improve over time. So let me not worry about them now. Yeah, that's right. Wow. So yeah. And, and, you know, I actually got older. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think that experience kind of fueled your desire to become an entrepreneur so you no longer had to be a part of a big institution where you'd have to deal with these types of people? Yeah, I think um, at the time I started a business about 16 years ago, it still did look very challenging for Asian Americans in litigation. Definitely. Yeah, and it still kind of is. It still is, is, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, the only Asian Americans that were in litigation that were visible to me at the time were either intellectual property litigators and that kind of dovetailed with the stereotype that we're really good at math and science That's and right. so forth. And uh, and employment discrimination litigators where I think uh, for 
various reasons that some would consider sinister. A lot of companies like to hire uh, lawyers who are minorities to defend against suits by minorities oh, alleging racial discrimination. I can see why that so, is. <laughs> yeah, the case. Um, but, uh, you know, I think, uh, so, yeah, that was a factor. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. So that was some of the examples that you wanted to share about yeah. um, how to deal with unhappiness when the source is from outside. Are there yeah. anything else or should we move on to the next topic? Um, you know, one other example is uh, I think there's a type of unhappiness where uh, you realize it's beyond your control, but there's actually something uh, amusing or good about the fact that it's happening. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, there was a time at, during a, the long trial I did with Steve Cobry where a witness I had really prepared for a long time, who was really important, this is when we were prosecutors, was getting just destroyed on cross-examination by the main defense lawyer, a wow. guy named Bill Keon, who's very gifted at cross-examination. And I felt in that moment a sense of acute panic and <laughs> just disappointment at I had let down Steve Cobry, I let down myself, the government, the witness was getting destroyed. I had no control over it because you can't really stop the questioning. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, every trial lawyer has had the feeling of, I wish a giant hole would open up in the courtroom floor and swallow me whole and nobody would ever see <laughs> really? me again because oh I'm so embarrassed gosh. about either what I've done or how bad my witness is. I would have never expected you to have that type of feeling. <laughs> uh, I don't think it's possible to actually do you know, trial work for any length of time and not have that feeling repeatedly. Wow. But um, there was a moment after I was feeling acute unhappiness when I realized how skilled the examiner was and how, how good he was at just destroying this witness. And Steve Cobry saw me smiling and he turned to me and he wrote me a note saying, what are you smiling about? We're getting killed. <laughs> And I wrote back him a note saying, but the guy is so good. <laughs> so I do, I do think that you have to really try to find something amusing about most things that make you unhappy. Interesting. He's like, wow, I'm getting killed here, but he is really good. Yeah. And I'm really enjoying seeing him being so good. Well, figure, mm-hmm. according to the principles we just talked about, um, I've done all I can. That's right. It wasn't enough. And it's going to be a disaster. And... Um, and this is, uh, I guess, it's a self-correcting problem because the examination will end sooner or later. That's right. At some point. Uh-huh. Uh, so at that point, it was just might as well find find something funny about it. <laughs> and then over time, you'll get more experience and you'll be better at it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about how to be unhappy about yourself when the sources are from you. Yeah, so I think as part of some of the questions submitted. Mm-hmm. Um, I know, I got so many questions. Yeah. <laughs> we had a hard time complying. So if you're listening, we haven't had a chance to address your questions. Sorry, but maybe we could do part three. <laughs> I think one of the questions was, um, mm-hmm. how do you deal with things you don't like about yourself? Yeah. And uh, I actually have a number of things that I, don't, I didn't like about myself and don't like about myself along the way. And, um, and I think for mo- many people who suffer from insecurity or unhappiness, I would say that this is as big or bigger a source of unhappiness than external factors. Oh, for sure. Much bigger. Mm-hmm. If, if it's an external factor, like you're in a job that makes you miserable, you can switch jobs. That's right. right? Or you have a friend who uh, really has turned on you and is making you miserable. You can just stop dealing with that person. That's right. But sources of unhappiness where you're unhappy about something about yourself and makes you dislike yourself, this is really impossible to get away from. 
Uh, and so like all human beings, I have plenty of these. Mm-hmm. Um, you do? Yes. <laughs> but I think back to uh, the signal of what is unhappiness telling you? It's telling you there's a mismatch between what you want and what reality is. And so um, I think you have to have a realistic project of which of these mismatches are you really going to be able to close the gap on and which are either not possible to the degree you're imagining or uh, maybe you should just stop caring about them, in which case, instead of making reality better about yourself, you should just lower your expectations for yourself, <laughs> which can also make you happy. Wow, okay? interesting. Mm-hmm. So things about myself that um, I really was unhappy and I actually moved to try to correct it by making myself better mm-hmm. rather than dropping my expectations. is uh, One is for about a year, I was stuck being unable to speak any language fluently, which oh, drove me crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, this is when I was trying to switch from Korean to Spanish. Right. And I didn't have a strong foundation in Korean at the time, so I started forgetting some of my Korean. And I didn't learn Spanish fast enough to be able to speak it fluently. Oh my God. So this is when I realized the whole debate about linguists have about do ideas exist apart from language? Right. I can tell you from personal experience, they do. They do. Yeah. You were thinking, but you didn't know in what language you were thinking. Uh, I was thinking abstract thoughts, but unable to communicate with people exactly what wow, I was thinking. Interesting. Because all language, uh, all ideas have to be put into the cookie cutter of language before you can convey them to other people. And That's sometimes right. to yourself, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, this is something that caused me just intense unhappiness because you really couldn't make friends. Couldn't even tell my own mom, <laughs> what I was right. thinking a lot. <laughs> right. So um, ever since then, I've had a really strong interest in improving my languages and then trying to acquire more language skills. Um, and uh, and I think uh, that is something where I realized I have to just make it a lifelong uh, pursuit to try to improve my language skills in all respects. And it makes me happy. I see. So I... Um, I uh, got uh, my mom to get me um, books from Korea uh, as the, all the things I would have missed if I had gone to school in Korea. And I studied Korean on the side. Mm-hmm. And then um, obviously I uh, really threw myself into learning English and Spanish uh, really very intensely. And now that I end up using English and, Sp- English and Korean a lot, but Spanish less often, mm-hmm. I've tried to supplement it by just watching a lot of Spanish TV and practicing using Spanish in my in my work and my friendships as much as I can. That's right. And then you told me that um, last year on your New Year's resolution was to learn Spanish. Yeah. And then that led to you you working on some projects in South America and you went to Argentina. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think uh, that is an example of where I try to uh, make myself better rather than lower my expectations. But I would say for me, the vast majority of how I deal with things I don't like about myself is to not improve myself and then just lower my expectations for myself. <laughs> I found the older I get, that's a lot easier to do than to actually struggle to become something you're not. Can you give me an example? Uh, so, yeah, I think um, I, have a, a, I have actually a lot of things, um, but I'll just talk about a few of them that I don't like about myself, but mm-hmm. where I dealt with it just by admitting to myself that I'm not going to change. I'm mm-hmm. not going to improve. So, um, one thing is I actually think I'm not uh, – I don't fit well with, like, very high-class people. 
What? Yeah, but you so, are you have this very high class background. Well, I think people, uh, some people have that image. Um, mm -hmm. I guess they just think of, uh, I guess if you're at the head of an organization or you went to certain schools. Right. I, I guess I'm not even sure what high class means in that context, but I guess at some point in my life, I began through my work uh, to be exposed to people who had lots of money and um, had a whole culture of people who were wealthy. Right. So it was a peculiar culture or from my view peculiar in that they were um, into sort of, um, uh, I guess, uh, going to really cultured events, like going to you know, museums or big like artsy charitable events. Um, they would uh, buy art, for example, uh, collect wine, um, things of that sort, or buy like really stylish, expensive clothes, buy lots of jewelry, things of that sort. So, um, you know, I think when I was first exposed to that, first I was fascinated by it, but pretty rapidly I started feeling a bit like an imposter because wow. I actually literally have virtually no interest in any of that stuff. <laughs> and so when I was in these environments of like, you know, basically wealthy people being wealthy, what I realized was that I actually don't really like any of that stuff. Mm. It's not like I dislike them or think it's bad. It's just that I just knew this actually doesn't bring me that much happiness. Wow. I don't really enjoy it. And also, um, I wonder for at least some of them whether they're living out their view of uh, what they what they think rich people are supposed to want as opposed to what they truly want. I think right. there's some of that going on. Mm -hmm. um, so... Once I admitted this to myself, I stopped feeling uh, guilty that I wasn't more cultured, and I uh, and I wasn't like you know reading certain books or watching certain plays or doing whatever or being interested in art, whatever it is, and uh, and I basically just uh, began living the way I want. So, mm -hmm. you know, as an example, I um, I eat like really down home Korean food virtually all the time. Yes, I know that yeah. about you. <laughs> So I, I, unless I'm forced to for work or a special occasion, I don't like going to really fancy restaurants. Right. And um, when I travel, I even take uh, little cup ramens with me <laughs> and I eat those before I go out to a business dinner so I can just eat something I enjoy. <laughs> Fascinating. Wow. So did you ever feel like in order to really belong to this high-class society, you have to at least try to enjoy some of these high-class activities or try to at least pretend to fit in? Um, yeah, I think initially when I really needed business, mm -hmm. uh, I, f I really felt like, well, you know, people like other people who are interested in similar things. So I try to make myself interested in them and so that I could just kind of smoothly relate to them. So I, I did that to try to basically meet people. But I think there was a period of confusion when I thought I should be liking these things if I am, have some financial success and I have a certain educational background, and when I realize I actually just don't. Uh, and then when I just admit it to myself, I'm, I'm kind of um, really like kind of lowbrow things. Uh, you know, I think I have the taste in movies of like a 14-year-old boy. <laughs> I, I was actually just a lot happier. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of people uh, feel guilty that they are, you know, um, or they have an inferiority complex, like, oh, so-and-so seems more learned than me, mm. or I should, you know, uh, look a certain way, I should be cultured a certain way, and then they feel bad about themselves. But I think, you know, it, if you really just kind of admit to yourself what brings you joy, 
I think it's a lot easier just to not improve yourself, frankly. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so it's I think there's always a mismatch or people are confused by what they want versus what they should want, what right. other people want for them, right? And this yeah. is really relevant to our next question, which is um, in our last conversation, you shared that we need to make sure that the societal definition of success and happiness are not subconsciously affecting our de own definition of success. So how can we ensure that we're not doing that? Because I think most of us don't even know it is happening to us. Yeah, that's right. I think um, what really helped me is I stopped thinking of myself as a good person. <laughs> right? I think that's been extremely helpful because mm -hmm. most people subconsciously think of life as like a drama where they're the protagonist and that's they're right. the good person. Mm -hmm. So they feel like they're supposed to fit that role, which means uphold you know, whatever principles they think they're supposed to uphold. But, you know, we're all pretty complex creatures. And, uh, you know, if you really kind of unpackage yourself, it's like a mix of things that are attractive and really unattractive. Right. And it's a pretty big project to make yourself uh, so good that you actually fit this ideal person that you think you're supposed to be. Right. Um, so the moment I kind of accepted that there are things about myself that are just unattractive and bad. <laughs> and I actually don't consider, based on what I was just telling you, worth changing. And mm -hmm. I'm just going to accept it. Mm -hmm. um, it helped me really clarify my goals because I stopped mm -hmm. having unrealistic goals of trying to remake myself into something I can't be. So, you know, I think I see this all the time in, for example, people tell me they have certain moral beliefs or political beliefs. Right. But I actually think much of the time people actually deep down don't even believe those things that deeply. They articulate them because they, they think it will make them popular with other people who hear it. Interesting. So one very interesting example of this is the the wave of uh, Me Too movement support, mm -hmm. right? So this was obviously a very deep set of problems in how men and women should work together in workplaces and all like the predatory behavior that's been going on really for many, many years. Right. So there's that core real issue. But then have you noticed throngs and throngs of men coming out and suddenly being like vocal supporters of Me Too and women's rights, whereas a few years ago, those same men weren't saying anything. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the, <laughs> Where were you when we needed you? Yeah, the harassment was still just as real a few oh, years sure. ago. But now that it's, it's given them a chance to maybe uh, promote themselves or ingratiate themselves with other people, mm -hmm. or they perceive that saying these things will make them seem more sensitive, advanced, et cetera. Now suddenly this is something that's like a big thing for them. And I'd be really interested in the project where you line up all of the men who have now come out and said this is such an important issue for them and look uh, 10 years into the future and see if they're still putting the same amount of energy into it wow. when it's no longer perhaps the flavor of the month in, in their mind as mm -hmm. to what's going to make them popular. So I actually think most of us when we unpackage what our moral beliefs are mm -hmm. or what we tell other people our moral beliefs are and what um, uh, our political beliefs are, I, I would actually guess a substantial percentage of the things we tell other people we believe, we only say we believe because we think it helps other people look at us as a good person. Whereas deep down, you're not actually willing to make any of the sacrifices necessary to actually carry out these lofty things that you're saying. Wow. So that's and me too. Really? I'm like that too. <laughs> <laughs> what are some of the things that um, you know could be an example for you? Um, so, I think that uh, you no know, one of the um, well, I guess now it's very few because I actually don't tell people things 
like I'm a good person when I actually don't really believe it. <laughs> so I don't really have that many like ideals or principles that mm-hmm. um, I articulate. But I think that um, one of the uh, one of the things that often happens is, and I I felt this way too, which is that I felt for a long time I was working really hard, uh, and that somehow it was because I was uh, such a good father, for example. And I, I was see. like really helping my kids by mm-hmm. like making money for them and providing for them and so forth. And so I would articulate why I was working hard to them like I'm such a good father. Um, and then when I had to do a huge amount of work and maybe you know, miss time with them, et cetera, um, I would explain to other people like, you know, I'm really trying to be a good father and support them and so forth. But at some point I realized, you know, a lot of what I do, I do not because I absolutely really have to to try to support them or whatever, but because that's just what I am. Right. I actually really enjoy doing work. I, I enjoy doing certain things. I enjoy the travel. And what you know, once I just kind of admitted a lot of what I do is actually quite selfish. <laughs> and what I was doing was I was trying to fit it into a uh, image of somebody who's working on behalf of other people. Uh, to try to justify it to other people and to myself. I, once I stopped doing that, I stopped having all the guilty feelings that everybody has about work-life balance. Mm-hmm. Whereas like, I thought, well, you know, I'm not spending enough time with my kids, but I'm really working for them. And that, that whole type of really false dichotomy. Right. And I just admitted that you know, I'm just the type of person that even if I could spend more time with them, I choose to spend some, some, some amount of time I could spend with them just for myself doing other things like work. Right. And, you know, it's for selfish reasons. It doesn't actually help them at all. Mm-hmm. And you're, um, I think the last time when we met for lunch, you told me how you used to feel bad when you were traveling for work and you would feel guilty that you're not spending time with your kids and then you try to rush back, but then you actually wanted to spend an extra day or two like visiting and exploring the city. So like, can you tell us your process of how you've managed to deal with that, that conflict or sense of guilt that you're feeling? Yeah, so I think um, there's a, there's a real dichotomy. A lot of people don't even realize that guilt and shame are different. They think it's the same thing. Or right. all these feelings come from like not separating the two. Mm-hmm. So I would say like shame is uh, where you feel bad that other people found out something about you. Right. When in fact, <laughs> if they didn't find out, you'd be totally okay with it. Oh, wow. And guilt right. is where you feel like you let yourself down. Mm. That you were not supposed to do something and you know, you did it anyway or vice versa. And so I think the whole situation of going somewhere for travel and wanting to stay a few extra days and I could rush back to be with my kids. If you don't separate out the two, you just feel bad about the whole situation. You feel like, oh, I should go back. And then you feel like, oh, all I'm doing is working. And then it, it cycles back to your justification. Oh, but I'm really working for them. Right. It's just a bunch of lies upon lies. Really, it's just you just lurch from one uh, really incorrect conclusion to another. Mm-hmm. So once I kind of admitted to myself that I actually uh, just want to spend a few extra days, one or two days to just enjoy myself there uh, and really, you know, get to know a new place that I might not come back to. And at the end of the day, you know, your life is doesn't culminate in some big judgment. It's just an amalgamation of all your moments. That's so right. if this was really, really valuable to you and you miss it, that's just going to be less value for your life that you, you're getting out of your time here, right? Mm-hmm. So, and I realized the reason I was feeling bad about going back early 
was that I was missing out on this thing that I really want. Uh, whereas if I stayed, the reason I was feeling bad was not so much that I felt bad I wasn't with my kids, but rather that I was saying, I was saying to myself, I'm the type of person who would take an extra day to enjoy myself rather than spend time with my kids. Mm. And that, that made me feel bad. But then I realized, as long as nobody finds out about it, I'd be totally okay with it. <laughs> so I didn't go back and tell my kids I spent an extra day, <laughs> but I did it. <laughs> I see. And now you're okay with it because you're like, oh, that's okay because that's how you want to live your life. Well, I think that everybody has a limit to how much they can do for other people. That's right. And I think you should also examine, when, even when you think you're doing something for other people, whether it's partially really for yourself anyway. Mm. In other words... You know, usually relationships, uh, most relationships have some give and take. Of course. So with rare exceptions, I would say when you're doing something for someone else, you're probably hoping to get something back at some point or that person brings you joy in some other way, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that, um, you know, once I kind of unpackaged it and, um, and I realized that I'm just doing something for myself and there's a limit to how much, how good you can be. Right. So I am going to be the type of person who shamefully spends an extra day <laughs> to look around when they could be there with their kids and I'm okay with it. And mm. that may be just a lot you know, more uh, in sync with being able to, you know, be happy with myself. Right. And I think you've just helped a lot of parents kind of unburden yeah. their guilt or shame <laughs> or whatever they're feeling. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll cause a lot of neglect now. <laughs> no, this is really great. Um, so I think one of the most important steps in achieving happiness and success is learning about ourselves and becoming more self-aware. Yet this is not something we're taught when we're growing up in school or at home. So how can we gain more self-awareness? Yeah, I think for me, the, the, um, the most useful exercise in terms of un unpackaging how you really work is this whole concept of separating out guilt and shame. Mm-hmm the whole concept of why do you feel unhappy about something about yourself? Is it because you actually don't want to be that and you want to change it? Or is it because other people think of you as that? Interesting. And you're, you're unhappy about how people perceive you. Right. But you're actually totally okay with it. <laughs> <laughs> I think people don't even know there's a distinction. Right, right. Mm -hmm. But I think most times when I hear about people being unhappy about themselves it's actually more the latter than the former. In other words, they're just unhappy other people perceive them a certain way. Right. But they're actually totally okay with whatever it is that <laughs> is causing it. Interesting. So then how do you how do you deal with that? Uh, I would say truthfully, most of the time, I actually just uh, don't improve myself. And I actually <laughs> accept whatever it is that's mm -hmm. cause, that you know I say is a defect in me. Mm -hmm. And if people are going to make me feel bad because they don't like the, whatever defect or flaw, I actually just get away from those people and just <laughs> either surround myself with people who don't know about my defect mm -hmm. or would be totally okay with it. But you you have this like really prestigious background, right? You went to like Harvard Law School and undergrad. So you must have been around, surrounded by so many people who really um, – you know, value, prestige, and external recognition, how people think about them. So how did you kind of come to where you are now, where you don't care about that? Um, yeah, I think it's uh, when you, um, the more people you are close to that die, uh, the more you actually, it crystallizes for you that mm. the goal is to actually be happy with your time here. That's right. As opposed to trying to, you know, 
please whoever it is that you think is going to be pleased because you also see how transitory people are in your life. You know, sure. People who are really important to you at age 16, maybe the popular kid in school that you wanted to be like, right. no longer in your life at age 46. That's right. That's <laughs> right. Know? So it's like really understanding if we're living our own lives and our values versus other people's. Yeah, yeah. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Michael. We're going to continue the fascinating conversation next week. So please stay tuned for next week's episode. And if you're interested in learning more about my group coaching program for Career Happiness Academy, please check out the link I have on the show notes. Just for this first group, I'll be including two sessions of one-on-one 90-minute coaching with me for each person in the program. And I will not offer a one-on-one coaching in my future group coaching program. So if you are curious about coaching, this will be the best time for you to participate. In the program, you'll learn how to gain self-awareness by learning more about yourself like Michael and I talked about today and how you can gain clarity about your goals and how to take action to achieve them. So if you are ready for a big change, I invite you to join me in this inspirational journey to transform your career and life so you can finally take action and achieve what you have always wanted, whether that is a career transition, starting a side project, writing a book, or whatever your goal or dream may be. I'll be inviting people on a rolling basis and I expect it to fill up pretty quickly. So if you're interested, I encourage you to take a look at the link in the show notes or go to selinalee.co forward slash C-H-A. That is C-E-L-I-N-A-L-E-E dot C-O forward slash C-H-A, which stands for Career Happiness Academy. And reach out to me by filling out a short questionnaire and we'll schedule a time to talk. Filling out the questionnaire does not mean you're signing up for the program. This is just a way for me to learn about your background and who you are and how I may be able to help you. And during our phone conversation, you can ask me any questions you have about me and about the program. If you have questions about my one-on-one coaching or have any thoughts or questions about my podcast, you can also visit me at my website, selinali.co, and please send me a message on my contact page. And please subscribe on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And while you're at it, I would really appreciate it if you can please write me a review. It's really easy to do it on iTunes, and it will really help me to spread the word and get discovered by new listeners. So thank you so much, and I'll be back soon with another episode. I hope you have a great week.